BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Big problems become big problems when you let small problems sit. Ben Jarofsky Show Benny J Bonus Interview is brought to you in part by the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Local 9, the International Union of Operating Engineers Local 150, and the Chicago Federation of Labor. Benny J, take it away. Bonus time on the Ben Jarofsky Show. As I speak, it's Friday, September 4th, 2020. But of course, it's a podcast. You can listen to this anytime. It could be the year 2033 and you're listening to it. But I just wanted you to know what day it was that we did the interview. And I'll read to you, give you a little sense of what's going on in the world. The headline in the Chicago Tribune. Home delivered every day. I'm holding up that enterprise. Me, financially. You're welcome, Chicago Tribune. Strict curbs ahead for Facebook ads. Platform to ban new political messaging and week before vote to that. I say this. About freaking time, Zuckerberg, you cheapskate. What you should really do is hire some journalists to review all the stupid ads that people put in. And you can do two things. One, you can keep your site clean of propaganda and BS. And two, you can give some journalists a job. And with that... I will now ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I was waiting. I thought you had a distinguished guest. <laughs> That's actually not is bad. That, is, that, is that me? Yes. And That's this well is a done. bonus. A, I'm a bonus episode. This is like yeah. a reward for your listeners. Yes. Uh, this I, is what I, they I, get at the end of a hard week. I of think work. You, really, you really need to rethink the concept if I'm the bonus. <laughs> but OK, so I'm supposed to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Charlie Myerson. Uh, I've been a journalist in Chicago for longer than I care to say, although if Ben insists, I probably could say it. Uh, you may know me from such famous radio stations as WXRT, WNUA, WGN, FM News 101.1, which lasted only a year, uh, or more recently for some work for WBEZ, uh, for um, Rivet, a great little startup in Chicago, and my latest little baby, ChicagoPublicSquare.com. Is that enough? Uh, that's very good. And uh, we're going to do a lot of ChicagoPublicSquare.com uh, discussion because I'm fascinated uh, by this aggregation service that Charlie provides on a daily basis. Can uh, I jump yeah. in? And I want to thank you. Uh, I want your listeners to know how powerful your email endorsement is. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Ben said uh, uh, several nice words about Chicago Public Square in a recent email to his fans and followers, and that drove more new free subscriptions for Chicago Public Square than any any other single mention that I'm aware of in its history dating back to January 2017. So thank you, Ben, for that, and thank you for inviting me here today. You're, you're welcome on both fronts. You deserve it. And that power is why uh, a song was uh, named for me, uh, and it's called Under My Thumb, yeah! 
Sorry, oh, Charlie. Man. Just, uh, <laughs> all right, Charlie. Hey, that's, that's the Rolling Stone. Isn't that a Rolling Stone, Charlie? Before we came on the air, I had a little trivia question for young Charles Meyerson. And I hate to say it, folks, he did not fare well in I that mean, trivia game. Well, but, the way you sang it, it did sound like the Moody Blues. <laughs> and only after you sang it the way Mick Jagger would was I able to identify it. I was a little bit slow, but your Mick Jagger, ladies and gentlemen, Ben's <laughs> Mick Jagger imitation is not to be trifled with. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we get to uh, Chicago Public Square, which is uh, it's really what I want to talk about, uh, running an aggregation service in the day and age. All right. Wait, uh, wait hold on. Let's, I, ag- I hate that word aggregation. It is such a bloodless phrase. Okay. Sorry. So what do you want to call it? Like that. It's a it's a newscast by email. It's a news roundup. It's uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a minister has referred to it as Charlie's news ministry. It's Charlie reads the news so you don't have to. It's a radio newscast delivered by text. But aggregation is just sounds like a mechanical thing that a computer does. And and I hope that's not what Chicago Public Square feels like. All right, hold on for one moment while I rewind the tape. (laughs) Uh, Charlie's News Roundup service, it's Charlie's ministry. Uh, I never said aggregation, never said it at all. (laughs) You know, not only do you do a great Mick Jagger, you do a great tape rewind. (laughs) The depths of your talent continue to astonish me. Charlie, one day I'm going to do my let the cat out of the bag imitation, which you will not believe. Well, wait. (laughs) Okay, thank you. I, All right, I'm now, glad you, I thought you were going to make us wait, but I'm glad you delivered. Okay, you. so here's the thing. I want to talk about uh, your days in radio. I am very, very late to uh, talking in the microphone game. Uh, I was an old man when I got this gig, but I am... Uh, Charlie, I say this all the time. I'm one of those kids that grew up with a radio next to my ear, and I listened to absolutely everything. I was a a kid growing up in Evanston, went to Evanston High School, Nichols Junior High. Yes, yes, Mighty Nichols. And I would listen to Bulls games. I listened to WIND, David Baum. I listened to um, WCFL, WLS. I listened to WVON. I listened to Richard Pegee. And I, I just like... I would always have the sports, music, everything, uh, radio to my ear. So, like, when I start talking in front of a microphone, Charlie, it's like all these voices from the past cascade down. And so, like, when I do those, that's like uh, Wally Phillips pushing the, you know, it's actually Mike Novak doing all the work, but making those little goofy noises or it's, you know, uh oh, hold it. Honey, how many times do I tell you, don't call me when I'm interviewing Charlie Meyerson. Sorry about that. Um, so, Charlie, were, were, you, uh, were you the same kind of kid? Were you a kid growing up with the radio I, I was a kid. I was a kid growing up, and I was a kid growing up with, uh, in this case, a Sears Silvertone transistor radio uh, that I connected via uh, um, a little cable uh, to a Panasonic RQ303 Reel-to-reel tape recorder, little three-inch reels, and I recorded some of my favorite things off the radio. I did mixtapes before mixtapes were a thing, uh, recording my favorite songs off what was then my favorite radio station growing up in the Detroit area, WXYZ, and, uh, and among other things, recording a radio show that changed my life, uh, the serial series. That's redundant, isn't it? Chicken Man. Oh, Chicken Man, yeah. Dick Orkin, uh, which, you know, touched on all the wonderful things that were radio, the whole theater of the mind thing, the humor, um, and among other things, um, capitalizing on something that I don't think enough contemporary radio 
has utilized, but that Paul Harvey perfected to an art, which is the art of the pause. The long, dramatic silence in Dick Orkin's work yeah. uh, when Miss Helfinger just couldn't believe that <laughs> Benton Harbor had said the outrageous things he said. So anyway, I have many, many reel-to-reel tapes that I recorded and that, uh, that you know, shaped my love of or reflected my love of, of radio growing up as a teenager, in, first in the Detroit area and then around age 13 uh, moving with my family because I was only 13 <laughs> to the Chicago area. So when you're in Chicago area at age 13, which is roughly the time uh, I moved to Evanston, funny thing, our planets were like in the same little orbit. It's like uh, parallel, parallel Earths that we've lived in. I know. Uh, what were you listening to in Chicago? Well, let's see. Uh, 1968, it was uh, I, 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 WLS or WCFL largely because those were the two rock radio stations. But as FM came along and when I got a little clock radio that had FM stations, I began to listen to um, WDAI radio, which was, I, I guess, the evolution from WLS-FM. Um, and, uh, and then a little bit of um, jazz on what was WSDM, smack dab in the middle. Oh, yeah. 97.9 later became WLUP, and now it's some kind of religious station. I forget what the call letters are. Um and and uh, and on into high school. That's that's kind of what I was listening to. And so when you finally made your way into the the industry as an employee, did it shatter like your vision of what radio was like when you had to deal with the actual job of being a radio man? No, because um, I was lucky. I mean, my first job out of college was at a small AM FM radio accommodation in Aurora, W M R O A M W A U R F M. And I got to be the boss of a very small, you know, first one person. And then I passed up a pay raise and they let me hire another person, a two person radio operation. So we really got to decide what we wanted to do and how we wanted to do it. Um, and then my next job was the one I'd wanted really since I was in high school, which was, WXRT and WXRT was not your standard radio station. It was a place where people dreamed uh, about what radio could be and how to make radio different and better from what was happening on a lot of commercial stations at the time. WXRT was commercial and it had a, you know, a new staff that believed that news was not just filler between music and not just being done to satisfy an FCC regulation, but it was a, it was a great team of people who were committed to, and actually who did win uh, awards for, for journalism at a time when that was kind of unusual for music radio stations. So Charlie, talk about those days, uh, give people a sense of what, what year are we talking about? What was going on in the world that uh, WXRT's reporters were covering? Uh, well, you know, bef- uh, when I was in college, they had a college DJ radio competition and I uh, sent that off and did not win, but got a lovely letter back from John Platt, who was then WXRT's uh, program director. This was 1976, I think, or so. And, uh, you know, John wrote me a lovely letter uh, that said I didn't win, but nevertheless encouraged me to to keep trying and said that, you know, he thought I had some good stuff going. And uh, so when I graduated, I wrote another letter and uh, they turned me down. And then while I was working in Aurora, I wrote another letter and uh, they turned me down. 
and then uh, I applied again. And uh, when they had another opening, when when CD Jaco, who had turned me down twice, uh, was leaving himself, put in a good good word for me with Neil Parker, who was succeeding CD Jaco as news director. And in 1979, you know, on really my third try to get a foot in the door at, at XRT, Neil was was kind enough to, to bring me on. Uh, in the years before I was hired at XRT, XRT was winning awards, uh, most famously, as I recall, an Armstrong Award, named after, you know, one of the pioneering technologists who brought us the FM dial. Uh, they had done some reporting on, um, on Nazis in Illinois, timely now more than ever. Um, and so, you know, I was walking in the door to a radio station that had done great work with C.D. Jaco and Linda Brill, who was the founding news director. Again, a, kind of an unusual situation to have a, a female news director at a radio station back in the in the 70s. Um, and, uh, and when, you know, when I came on board, we continued to report on issues of importance. XRT had a city hall reporter, uh, Marge Halperin at the time, who's really now a, a political analysis powerhouse in Chicago. You'll see her on many a station, uh, particularly WGN television, analyzing what's going on in politics. But she was a city hall reporter back then and, and doing a great job. And I had a chance to, um, you know, from the anchor desk, which is where I was, um, call anybody anywhere in the country and interview them and ask them to comment on issues of the day and turn it into little reports that went into, believe it or not, a, I think a, a seven or ten minute newscast at noon on a rock radio station. Had a chance to talk to uh, Mr. Rogers. Uh, I had a chance to talk to uh, Bill Scott, who was the voice of Bullwinkle. And, yeah, we were a serious news department, but we also did interesting <laughs> features. Um, interviewed um, Newt Gingrich before he became a menace to uh, society. Um, he was kind of in the forefront of some technological issues back in the day. And so we talked to him about technology issues before Congress. Um, so, you know, it wasn't just local news. It was news relevant to Chicago, whether it was happening in Chicago or not. Mm, yeah, probably I, more than you wanted to know, but that's a, that's a that's at least the beginning of my career. Yeah, and then you, I, WNUA. I I used to listen to W WNUA, but I I don't remember the news. Well, and and that was in part by design, not my design, but the design of the the programming. You know, again, uh, I went to WNUA because it was a chance. In I, you know, ironically, XRT. Uh, arguably the, the, the best job I've ever had in the sense that probably more people remember me from that than from anything else I've ever done. Uh, it's the one job in my career that I actually quit. All the others were, you know, separations, not of my own making. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm aware of that. It's uh, radio. You know, it's radio. Yeah. Um, but I left to, to join WNUA, which was a new thing. Um, uh, work with the great John Guerin, visionary radio programmer who, you know, uh, among other things, was responsible for WLS AM at its peak as a music station. Uh, John offered me a job at WNUA, a chance to be the boss. Neil Parker was a great boss, but here was a chance for me to be the news director. Uh, John said he wanted award-winning news, and we gave him award-winning news. But it was a music station, and unlike XRT, uh, which was rare at that time, again, this is 1989, 
Mm-hmm. Um, XRT did news top and bottom of the hour because that seemed like where news should be. But most other radio stations, uh, including WNUA at that point, began doing the 20 or 25 and 50 or 55 after the hour so that the ratings, which have perverted radio programming, I can elaborate on that, but I won't at this point. Um, you know, they wanted to be able to get people to listen across the top or the bottom of the hour from one quarter hour to the next. So you get credit for two quarter hours of listening if people listen from 55 to five after the hour, for instance. So the newscasts, so as not to encourage people to tune out, were placed at odd times in the morning drive, Uh, you know, again, 25 and 55 after the hour, 20 and 50 after the hour. So if you didn't hear news uh, at those unusual times, um, and again, it was just in morning drive, uh, I think we had a midday newscast for a while, but it didn't last long. Because it was all about the music, you know, those went away. Yeah, no, it was all about the music. So I think probably what happened, uh, I would listen to the music, and then when the music ended, I'd just change it. Uh, So you're responsible, so it's your fault. (laughs) Just add it to the long list of things that I'm responsible for. Um, (laughs) Ratings, perverted radio. Look, I can't let you walk away uh, from that comment. At least elaborate a bit on what you mean by that. Well, here's, I mean, here's the deal. Ratings have long been imperfect, and they have the opportunity to be more perfect now than ever. But you know, historically for much of the late 20th century, Arbitron, which was the ruling radio ratings organization, um, based its ratings on really a relative handful of diaries, literal books that people would write down what they listened to when. Mm-hmm. Um, and by definition, a lot of human error crept in, uh, bias. People would say, oh, I really like this radio station, so I'm going to write this radio station in whether I was listening or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, and, and again, because this was a pretty crude system, um, they really couldn't measure minute by minute listening, who's listening from nine fifty three to nine fifty nine. Um, listeners were you know, asked to write down quarter hours, um, which again is a, you know, it's a, it's an, it doesn't reflect the way people actually use radio. It just happens to be the way that the ratings were constructed. And so as a consequence, radio programmers altered the way they treated radio programming uh, to reflect those books. So you get this weird thing where news is not at the top and the bottom of the hour. It's at 50 and 20 after the hour, which doesn't, you know, in any realistic world, doesn't really make a lot of sense, but again, allows them to play the game of the ratings book. And, um, and again, as ratings are kind of a winner take all medium. So if you were number one in the ratings, you know, you'd get all the revenue. Um, if you were number 20 or 30, um, but had a very devoted audience, a very well-targeted audience that reflected, say, you know, a racial or ethnic uh, demographic group, um, you know, you got just crumbs uh, because it wasn't worth the advertiser's effort to sift through the ratings necessarily to find what they wanted. The early XRT, in my estimation, I wasn't in the sales department, so, you know, take this with... Um, I won't say grain of salt, but it's it's second or third hand. Uh, one reason XRT was able to flourish early on was that it had a relative handful of advertisers who believed in the product, even though the ratings, especially before it had an antenna on top of the John Hancock building, um, you know, before the ratings were anything to crow about. But they knew that they had a very direct line through XRT to a relatively intelligent, well-informed, relatively well-to-do audience that actually supported sponsors 
Now, uh, you made a comment a little while ago. I, I jotted it down. Uh, Newt Gingrich, men- menace to society. We'll get to that a little uh, in a little bit uh, when we start talking about Chicago Public Square. But it does reflect uh, sort of your worldview. Did you uh, make a an effort to... Uh, bury that or conceal your political worldview all those years you were doing uh news for these various outlets or uh, did you just let your freak flag fly uh i think that longtime listeners will have i hope they will always have perceived um a, a, a willingness and an embrace of the notion that reporters need to question authority um the fact that authority in the last few years has become more questionable than ever, uh, I think makes it incumbent on reporters to be more questioning of authority. Um, this milieu that we're in, can I say milieu? Do you mind French? You yeah, know, no, French? man, I love when you speak French. French. You know, uh, as, as I've probably said in a few different venues, um, if you're questioning authority and authority is hard right, By definition, reporters who are questioning authority are going to at least seem to come from the left Mm -hmm. Um, because that's where the skepticism comes from. Uh, I I personally don't think reporters were critical enough of the Obama administration um, because of a veneer of uh, civility. And and believe me, in in a second, I would take President Obama back uh, and exchange him for President Trump. Um, But. You know, Obama was not uh, a president who was necessarily friendly to the media. Um, Unlike Trump, he did not publicly trash the media, but the administration itself was not friendly to freedom of information requests, um, did not embrace the notion of of, uh, freedom of the press uh, on a number of levels. And um, and so it's much easier now. in this or, or appropriate now for reporters to be more skeptical than ever of authority, uh, especially as I say, when authority is so far, far removed from, uh, from the, the, the norm. All right. Well, let's get into it. Uh, Chicago public square, your, uh, daily, uh, news roundup. And, uh, you sent, you were so gracious as to send me a copy. I became a subscriber, a loyal reader. It's free. Uh, it's free. It's so it didn't cost me. Can't, any cent yeah. It can't be. It's like the reader. It's free. Although, it's like although the although Petrowski have, podcast. I have, I have to tell you this. You're the, all the, the, the flood of subscribers you gave me pushed Chicago public square into a new membership bracket for MailChimp. So now I'm sending to more subscribers and MailChimp has decided to charge me more a month. So, <laughs> so wait, now you're, you went from thanking me to blaming me. I'm not thanking you. Uh, I'm still thanking you. I'm just letting you know that you, you know, you know, with I'm great costing power, you money. Uh, with great power comes great expense. Well, <laughs> you know what they call thing. a double-edged sword. Uh, all right. So uh, now... I always I'm very upfront about my politics. I, I, I reside in lefty land and I'm a lefty. Everybody knows that. Uh, and when I read uh, Chicago Public Square, I didn't detect an ideology, a strong ideology, a little wisecracks here and there. But, uh, you know, not like wisecracks that I would see maybe, uh, uh, you know, on um, 
Steve Colbert or uh, Jimmy Fallon. You know what I mean? Just that's the guy in power. So you're making wisecracks about him. It's like, as you were saying, it pays to be skeptical. Uh, What really got to me, though, was you ran this piece. I think it was about two weeks ago. This is what set me off where you cited you quoted some uh, (laughs) some reader who said, I've had enough. I'm just doing this on the top of my head. I can't take another minute of this lefty stuff. Uh, I I'm I'm pulling pull my subscription. I'm sorry I ever subscribed. I really irritated me, Charlie, because first of all, the right is always talking about the left and cancel culture. So little wimpy there couldn't take some little wisecrack that Charlie Myerson made about Donald Trump, his precious little MAGA, Donald Trump, and (laughs) sobbing, pulled his subscription. If that's not cancel culture, I don't know what is. Well, that really This is someone who had been with Chicago Public Square uh, from the, the almost the get go, uh, 2017, and I ha- if I had to guess, I would I, one of the one of my first appearances to promote Chicago Public Square was on you know my old stomping grounds at WGN Radio with with Justin Kaufman, um, and and so this person I suspect signed up because he'd heard about it through WGN Radio. Um, so it kind of surprises me after suffering through, you know, <laughs> more than three years of this, yeah. that all of a sudden this person, you know, was reached his limit. Um, and my and, and interestingly, by the way, uh, a few of the people and just a handful of people who signed up since you were kind enough to tell, encourage people to sign up for Chicago Public Square have also left um, leaving remarks like, uh, too liberal, too left for me. So I'm surprised that, and again, I don't know for sure, but it seems like people that you sent my way uh, thought that what I'm doing is too liberal for your audience. So it's it's a bit of a mystery for me. But you know what what I what I take away from this is, especially as the election approaches, and uh, do you feel this way that tensions are rising, that people are becoming more polarized than ever uh, as we approach the November election. Did, do you feel that? Do you encounter any of that in your world? Oh yeah. Well, I, uh, uh yes, we are more. And, and even within, within the, the progressive spectrum of American politics, um, there is more, uh, tension among those who are either in, enthusiastically or not so enthusiastically supporting Joe Biden and Kamala Harris that, even they are beginning to get on one another's nerves more than might have been the case, say, a few weeks ago. Well, actually, uh, uh, now you're talking about one of my favorite topics, uh, the, the internal skirmishing uh, in the on, on, in lefty land, or it's actually not even lefty land. It's anything uh, to the <laughs> left of Joe Biden, which is yeah. a huge, enormous thing. And that's old time. I Throughout the 90s and the O's, I was mostly writing about local politics. And I was writing about local politics from a perspective that was very critical of the powers that be, Richard M. Daley, Rahm Emanuel. And so I was always getting reamed by liberals. Yeah, yeah. So your quintessential lakefront liberal hated me. They'd send me letters saying, if it was up to you, Ben, Chicago would be Detroit. I would get this all the time in the 90s. Mayor Daley is keeping Chicago from being Detroit and Gary. Well, Charlie, you know, talk about 
code language what they're saying. And so I'm well aware of the divide between liberals, conventional liberals, uh, and who, the kind of liberals who would love vote for Richard M. Daley and love doing it, and lefties. So yes, I see that divide. I actually think, believe it or not, uh, Charlie, that that schism is is it's not as deep as intense as it was in 2016. I was listening, get your thoughts on this. Like Noam Chomsky, for instance, gave an interview where he said he absolutely must uh, vote out Donald Trump. Uh, um, uh, I just saw an interview with uh, Professor West, Cornell West, I blanked on his name for a second, Cornell West giving an interview where he called Joe Biden an anti-fascist. He goes, Joe Biden, I agree on nothing, but he's an anti-fascist, so he must vote for him. So I think that the Donald Trump threat is so powerful that uh, it has more or less, and it's more or less, this is key, healed that wound. That's my view, and what's your thoughts? You know, I'd go, I wouldn't go so far as to say healed. Uh, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of healing going on anywhere. That's I, correct. I, again, and, and I, I'm this is just based on, you know, a handful of exchanges. So I am not a pollster. I'm not a sociologist. But anecdotally, you know, watching comments on Facebook. Um, no, I think that rift is as strong as ever. I, I, I think there is, of course, as you've acknowledged, uh, widespread agreement that Donald Trump needs to go. Um, but I expect that should that happen, and even if it doesn't, that, you know, that schism will reassert itself very quickly after the election. Oh, yeah. It'll, you can just listen to my show and you'll hear it. And I'm really hoping that Joe Biden wins. I'm really hoping Joe Biden wins so I can put pressure on him to move left and not just go right. But uh, you're right. It will uh, be very pronounced then. Uh, all right. This leads me to a sort of a larger question about the notion of objectivity. You've been in the game for a long time, Charlie. Uh, do you think such a beast actually exists as objectivity? You, you, do you know I've written about this? I don't, it's, it's as if you know that I've written about this, but I've I've written actually, and I I posted a, a long essay. Well, it's not long, it's long for radio, but it's not long really uh, on Medium, uh, quoting a, a paper I wrote back when I was in college. 1976, saying objectivity does not exist. Uh, to be truly objective, you would have to have all information about everything, and that is something reserved for an omniscient being, <laughs> if you believe such a being exists, or even if you don't. Um, and that the very process of reporting any event involves selectivity. Uh, to, to cover a city council meeting and be perfectly objective, one would have to interview every member of the city council and every person <laughs> in the audience and quote all of those interviews in their entirety. And in essence, we're talking about an infinitely long piece of journalism to cover one city council meeting. Um, and of course, that's silly. But, you know, the process for deciding whom to interview and whom to quote and where to place those quotes at the beginning or the end, which, of course, some people say is where you go if you want to find out what a reporter really thinks, see what quote they put at the end of their story. Um, you know, that that makes the whole process subjective. And so I prefer, rather than talk about objectivity, to talk about fairness. Mm -hmm. um, are all valid, and by that I mean truthful or based in fact opinions and perspectives represented fairly? 
um, or at least given acknowledgement. Um, and over the course of a lifetime for a publication or a journalist, um, does one get a sense that, okay, they are trying to reflect as many viewpoints as possible. And that's what I try to do with Chicago Public Square. So um, that would be, you know, I, 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 I even as much as I disagree almost entirely with him, almost all the time, uh, I will not completely boycott, boycott uh, my former colleague at the Chicago Tribune, John Cass. Every once in a while, he says something that I, I think people of different political persuasions need to read about or understand or be aware of mm -hmm. um, that people with other viewpoints feel this way and you should know about this. So oh, no objectivity, but fairness. Yeah, to be fair. Well, I feel I struggle with this, uh, Charlie, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I agree with you. I actually agree with you. No objectivity, but be fair. And I've always felt I tried to be fair, bending over backwards to be fair. My sense of things right now is on so many levels that the Republican Party under Trump is not playing fair in any way. They lie constantly. They make up they make up accusations about Joe Biden that are preposterous. There's not any attempt to acknowledge Joe Biden as a legitimate voice uh, in American politics or the people who support him as legitimate voices that we can work. It's no fairness whatsoever. So if I play, quote unquote, fair, when the other side is just playing unfair, I'm just being a sucker and a sap. As I like Absolutely. To say. Absolutely. And, and again, to come back to what I consider the essence of good journalism, it means if someone is persistently unreliable or deliberately lying, that person does not deserve a place at the table, at least not a place at the table without clear identification. Oh, by the way, this person often lies. And that's not, you know, over the course of what some people, some journalism scholars have dubbed the age of mass media, roughly 1955 to 1995, the rise of the TV networks to the rise of the Internet. Um, the, the, the notion of objectivity really was a business imperative. Will Remus wrote in Slate, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here, that it, it was a business imperative that uh, mutated into a, a, an ethical directive. Um, before 1955, before TV networks, um, you picked your newspaper out of, you know, maybe nine or ten newspapers in Chicago, and they all had political orientations. You picked your newspaper based on your politics or your economic station in life. And then as with the rise of the Internet, we sort of returned to what really had been the natural state of journalism. But in this in this age of mass media that I think a lot of people pine for now, again, 1955 to 1995, what people want is what advertisers wanted, which is uh, an environment where just don't rock the boat. We want as many people as possible. So don't say anything that will piss anybody off. Um, but the result was you had uh, several generations of editors, journalists and reporters, most of whom I want to remind you were white men who did not have the courage or the corporate support to do what is now being done more widely, which is to say, this person said this, but by the way, the person who said that has a history of lying about this very thing. That's good journalism. That is perspective on every quotation that goes into a news story. We're beginning to see that. We have begun to see that happen more often with, with Donald Trump. 
and those allied with him. But that's good journalism, where you give your reader not just a quote, but context for understanding that quote and the person who said those words. Well put. I agree with you on that. I see the New York Times doing that more and more. Uh, All right. So we'll close with me giving you this challenge, and it's sort of... uh, Rolling Stones. (laughs) Under my thumb, yeah. No. (laughs) Uh, What was it? Oh, it was Time Waits for No One. He thought that was the booty button. Ladies and gentlemen, he thought... I was thinking Drift... There there are similar lyrics in uh, Driftwood, I think. I don't know. But anyway, no, I I blew it. I blew it completely. It's all right. Don't worry about it. And you're Mick Jagger. Again, I salute from the (laughs) bottom of my heart. Yeah. You know, Mick himself once said, yeah, Benny, you're you're Mick Jagger is great. Uh, All right. So the test of the day, and this is, uh, this, this is a reflection on your quote unquote subjectivity, objectivity, et cetera, and so forth. So you follow your news junkie. You know the story I'm talking about. Well, not yet. You've given me no clue whatsoever. I know. I'm holding back. Now it comes. (laughs) Do you believe, do you, one, Charles, Charlie Meyerson, believe that Donald Trump called those dead soldiers losers? Go ahead. The volume of reporting on this leaves very little doubt in my mind that he did it. Uh, His behavior over the years is consistent with the notion that he would say that. Um, because I have no firsthand knowledge, I cannot say with certainty, yeah, he said it, but uh, I haven't seen any reporting yet that persuades me that he didn't. And I've seen lots of reporting that makes a compelling case that he did. Okay, well, let me is that a weasel? Is that a Weasley answer or is that uh, a truthful answer? Oh, it's pretty good, but let me just tell you this. Okay, let me counter that with this. You say you see no reporting that is suggested otherwise. I'm going to tell you right now that Sarah Huckabee Sanders said he did not say it. So therefore, if she says he didn't say it, it must be true that he didn't say it. You can't prove a negative. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders is not a journalist. And Sarah Huckabee Sanders has not demonstrated enough logical rigor to persuade me that she has the ability even to attempt to prove a negative. So there. Okay, touche. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, that voice that you just heard, Charlie Myerson's voice, that is the voice that is in Chicago Public Square. Uh, it's kind of a wry. He lets you know. He doesn't hammer you over the head with it like certain people like Ben Jarofsky <laughs> would. Uh, but he lets you know where he's coming from. So, Charlie, before we uh, let you out the door, as they say, tell folks how they can get a hold of Chicago Public Square so they can start following it and they won't be wimps like your uh, sobbing friend of the Trump <laughs> MAGA hat wearing Not persuasion. Not a friend. <laughs> Not a friend. Go to Chicago Public square.com there's a big subscribe button there and or you can go if you really want to save time you go to subscribe.chicagopublicsquare.com type in your email address that's it you're done well you have to click okay or submit um don't ask your name don't want your zip code don't need your income uh don't need your uh, political orientation just your email address and then you get it in your email box every day after labor day beginning at 10 o'clock in the right. so, so let me just understand this one more time. Make sure I get this correct. It is, is it free as in F-R-E-E? It is free as in F-R-E-E in that if you want to get it, we'll send it to you. There is, as is uh, increasingly the case with a lot of media organizations, uh, including public broadcasting, radio and television, uh, a, a, a frequent reminder generally at the bottom of the issue, hey, this costs us time and money to produce. Uh, if you'd like to help keep it coming, 
chip in and you can name your own amount. You could send 10 cents a month if you wanted. No, actually, I'm sorry. It starts at a dollar. You could send a dollar and one cent a month uh, or more if you want, just to basically to keep me from quitting. Um, <laughs> well, and uh, but it's free if you know, if you don't want to do that, it's free. And if you want to advertise, that's another way to support it. But but mostly I want the biggest audience possible. And that means if you want it for free, you can have it for free. All right, very good. We do the same thing to Ben's Rescue Show, but I'm on my own worst enemy. I'm going, hey, don't be cheap. Give us some money. It yeah, hasn't worked yeah. that well yet. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay, don't uh, be cheap. Give Ben some money because, there. because you know, maybe they'll invite me back, which yes. would be fun. Yes, you don't even have to give me money. I'll invite him back. Charlie Myerson, thank you very much for being here and keep up the good work, all right? You too, Ben. That's the great Charlie Myerson. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody.